G'day again, everyone. Today, as you can see, we're coming back to the book of Romans. So I hope you remember that earlier in the year, we uh, looked at Romans chapters 1 to 6, uh, and then we had a bit of a break, and we've been in the book of Genesis up from chapter 1 to 12, and I hope you've been enjoying that. God willing, we'll come back to Genesis next year and pick up the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, but now we're back into Romans. We're looking at chapter 7 tonight. Uh, which is one of the harder passages to grapple with. But then we're going to slow right down and over three weeks we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 because this is just, it is one of the great chapters of the Bible and it's worth really getting ourselves into. Uh, but to come back in at chapter 7 where we're sort of halfway through, uh, we need a bit of a refresher uh, and so we're going to get back into Romans. We've got to remember what we got up to by chapter 6. So I want to summarise it for us. I'll give you a bit of a lecture to start before we get into the sermon in Romans 7. So basically, though, what we've learned so far in Romans is the fundamentals of the gospel. Uh, this is why Romans is so important, because what it does is, more than any other book of the Bible, just ties everything together and gives us the very, very fundamentals of what you have to believe to be a Christian. Uh, that's what Romans is. It's why it's so important. So you might remember back when we started, I started with a quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer, where he said, the book of Romans is our soul's daily bread. It can never be read too often or studied too much. Uh, and that is because it is just so important. That's why you can't study it too much or read it too often. It is so important because it grounds you in the basics of the gospel. So what do we learn about the gospel in chapters 1 to 6? I've tried to summarise it in three sort of headings. The first is we learned about our problem. Uh, we learned about sin, uh, that every human being is guilty of sin and so we deserve God's judgment, his wrath, his righteous anger and condemnation. But then secondly, we learned about God's solution, uh, which is the death of Jesus. So you might remember we learned back in the beginning of the year I hope you remember, we learned some big words that end in shun. Do you remember some of those big words that end in shun? Uh, how Jesus' death is a... Who wants to have a go? The front row are really smart. I don't know about the people further back, but it's a propitiation, which is not a word you will use in conversation this week in all likelihood. But what does it mean? It means it's a sacrifice that turns aside God's anger. Sometimes our Bibles translate it a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, what it does, Jesus' death pays the price for our sin. But then thirdly, we learnt that we accept that gift by faith alone. So if there is one key phrase for the book of Romans, it is the phrase that you are justified by faith. You are justified by faith. That word justified just means you are declared innocent. You are declared righteous by God. And that happens by trusting in Jesus. And so the big point of the book of Romans is... You cannot be good enough for God. You cannot fix the problem of your sin. None of us can. No one can. We can't do it. We are still sinners. But if we trust in Jesus, and in particular in his death on our behalf, God counts us as righteous. It's not that we are righteous. It's not like we stop sinning. It's not like we become perfect. No, no, no. God counts us as righteous. He looks at us and sees that we have been washed clean. So our problem, sin and the righteous wrath of God, God's solution, the death of Jesus in our place and our response, faith in Jesus. And I want to tell you, and I hope you believe this, that is the greatest news ever told. There has never been anything better than that. There is nothing better. Because if God judged us on the basis of our works, if we had to, when we die, when Christ says, we have to stand before God and say, judge me on the basis of my life, there would be no one saved. 
because no one is good, Romans says. So praise God for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you understand that great news, that then raises questions. And we saw the biggest question back in chapter 6. Don't worry, we're going to get to Romans 7 in a minute. But uh, chapter 6 asks the question, well, why not just keep sinning then? So if you think about it, it's actually a really, really logical question. Uh, If I'm saved by grace, if it's not on the basis of how I live, then that's great. I trust in Jesus. See you later. I'll see you when Jesus comes back or when I die. It doesn't matter how I live. I'll go and keep sinning. I I won't do anything good. And so why not just keep sinning? We saw the answer to that back in chapter 6. You can skim over chapter 6 if you want. Run your eyes back there. The answer is, when you put your trust in Jesus, you became a new person. Uh, You are no longer a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to Jesus. Now you have the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you. And and so if you are happy to just keep tolerating sin in your life, this is what Romans 6 taught us, if you're just happy tolerating sin in your life, you think, I don't care how I live, then that is a massive problem because it suggests you haven't actually come to know Jesus. It suggests you're still that old person, you're still a, a slave to sin rather than someone who has come to know Jesus. So why do we not want to just keep sinning as Christians? Why do we want to live for Jesus? Well, it's because Phil the slave to sin, you insert your name, but, but me the slave to sin, that person died 20-something years ago. He, he ceased to exist. He was nailed to a cross with Jesus when I put my faith in Jesus all those years ago and a new person was born that day, a person who is now a slave of Jesus. Now, I, I don't look any different, well, I have over time, but on that day I didn't, didn't look any different but it's a new thing. That's why we talk about being born again as a Christian. That's what it is to be a Christian. So why do you not just keep sinning? Because that's not you anymore, if you know Jesus. Well, hopefully that's got you back into Romans, because now we come to chapter 7, which raises the next objection to the wonderful news of the gospel. So let's pray as we turn to chapter 7. But have your Bibles open, because you really do need to follow along, but I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Romans, and in particular, for the wonderful news of the gospel. That though we are slaves to sin, though we deserve your righteous wrath and judgment, you did something about it by sending your son to pay the price for our sin. And we thank you that we can take a hold of that salvation, that gift, by faith. But so, Father, now as forgiven sinners, as people who have been washed clean by Jesus, we pray that you'll help us to think about what it looks like to live for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we start, I want to uh, play a bit of a game. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. You've got to trust me here. I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> trust the person next to you. Just close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. I said this this morning and I look out and there's all these people just staring at me. So don't be that person who's staring at me. Close your eyes, okay? Just imagine you're walking into a building that you have never been in before. So you're walking into this new building. You're in the foyer. And as you come into the entryway, there are three doors in front of you. It's sort of like one of those game shows. Pick a door sort of thing. One has a sign on it saying, welcome. Another has a sign on it saying, come this way. And then a third door has a sign on it that says, no entry, only for authorised people. Now in your mind, just stare at those three doors. All welcome, come this way, no entry. Which one are you most interested in opening? Which one do you most want to look behind? You can open your eyes now. Surely it's the forbidden door, isn't it? 
Because that is every one of us. If you, you put a sign on saying something saying, don't touch, I want to touch it. I didn't want to touch I wasn't interested in it before, but you tell me not to touch it, I want to touch it. At the risk of embarrassing someone here tonight, where our family years ago was out for dinner somewhere, and uh, in the toilet in the, was a, a cord that said, do not pull, except in case of emergency. And we're all outside sitting around the table, and suddenly the alarm goes off in this restaurant. I think, what, what, what's happening? We better get out of here. I look, where's Sam? <laughs> He's pulled the cord, because it had a sign saying, don't pull it. And you know, if there's a red button on the wall that says, don't push, what do you do? It's like a magnet, isn't it? It draws you. You see, once something is forbidden, it becomes very, very attractive. Tell me I can't do it, I want to do it more than anything on earth. And that is the problem with trying to stop sin by making laws for people. This was the problem with the Old Testament law. It's one of the reasons it didn't work with Israel. See, in itself, God's law was a wonderful thing. It comes from God. But when our sinful hearts are told not to do something, it suddenly becomes the most attractive thing in the world. And that's what this chapter, Romans 7, is about. It's about the law of God and how we respond. See, all through the book of Romans, the issue of the law comes up over and over again. And we tend to just sort of skip over it because it's not our issue. Back in the early church, this was huge because many of the first Christians were Jews. And the Apostle Paul was telling them, you know how you used to have to keep all that Old Testament law, you couldn't eat this, you had to eat that, you had to do this on that day, you can't do this, you can't wear that, doesn't apply to you anymore. And they just could not get their heads around that. Paul kept saying, you're saved by grace. It's a free gift of God, faith alone. You don't earn it by keeping God's law. So a lot of people had a problem and their problem was, well then, why did God bother giving us the law in the first place? If we could never keep it, why give it to us? If all it does is condemn us, why does God give it to us? Now, as I say, this was a massive question in the early church. It's probably not a question that comes up for us every day. Whenever we have the life course, like we did this afternoon, and people ask their questions, this question never gets asked. Why did God give the Old Testament law? But I want you to stick with it, even though it's not our question, because what happens is when the Bible asks questions that aren't our questions, you actually find you find things out that you wouldn't have found out asking your questions, if that makes sense. So stick with me. So look on your outline, and the first point there is dead to the law. Look from verse 1. It says, Since I'm speaking to those who understand law, brothers, are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? That's actually a really obvious point. Uh, you don't need to study law to understand it. The law only applies to you when you're alive. Uh, that's just reality. Once you die, the law can't jail you. The law can't sentence you. The law can't, can't do anything to you. So Paul gives the example of marriage laws. Look at verses 2 and 3. Uh, he says, if you're married, this is under the Old Testament law, and you married another person, you'd be guilty of adultery. The law would catch you, and you would face the consequences. But if your husband or wife has died, you're free to remarry. The law doesn't apply to you anymore. So death terminates the power of the law to control you or condemn you. So that's all good. How is it relevant to us? Well, good verse 4. It says, Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. Now, I kept saying this earlier in the year, whenever we look at Romans, Romans is not for lazy readers. You've got to switch your brains on to get Romans. So look at it slowly. Look at that verse. 
It says, you also were put to death in relation to the law. Now, how can that be? When I'm still alive, or the next bit, you were put to death through the crucified body of the Messiah. So this is that same idea we saw back in chapter 6. I sort of wish it was last week, so it's fresh in your mind, but think five months ago when we looked at chapter 6. When you put your faith in Jesus, your old sinful self died with him, was crucified with him. And so the point is, in the same way that you died with Jesus, you didn't just die to sin, like we learned in chapter 6, you died to the law. The law no longer applies to us anymore. That means we don't have the threat of judgment hanging over us. Keep all these laws and rules or you will face death and judgment. No, now Jesus has taken the punishment of the law. Death and the judgment of God, Jesus has taken that away. So look at verse 4 again. It says, Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. See, we've been freed from the law with all its do's and its don'ts and its punishment, not just so that we can now go and break the law, not just so that we can now go and do whatever we want and it doesn't matter. We've been freed so that we can now choose to go and bear fruit for Jesus, that we can go and choose to be godly. See, the way of the law is do this or don't do that or you will face the consequences. Keep the Sabbath or you'll be put to death. Don't commit adultery or you'll be stoned to death. Don't injure your neighbour or the same injury will be done to you. That's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. See, that's the way the law works. We aren't under the law anymore. Jesus paid the price for all our breaches. He died so we didn't have to. So now we serve in a new way and it's in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It's called the way of the Spirit. And the way of the Spirit is do this, not because you fear consequences if you don't, Do this because you want to please the one who died for you. I think most people out there don't understand this about Christianity. Most people out there think Christians are scared of God's judgment and so we we don't do things or we do things because we think that'll save us or that'll make God not judge us or, or it'll earn something. No, 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 no. We do it because we're already saved and we want to please the one who died for us. Do this because his Holy Spirit is at work in you. Live for God because you know he's died for you and has risen to give you a new life. See, the Christian obeys God not out of obligation, not out of fear of consequences. The Christian obeys God with joy. That's the way of the Spirit versus the way of the law. Now, that raises a question, if you think about it, which is, then why did God give the law? Where we started, why did God give the law to his people? What was the point of it? Did God actually give his Old Testament people something bad? something unhelpful. That's the next little section. Come to verses 7 to 11. And as we look at this, just keep in mind how I started the sermon, talking about the doors and the don't go in. Look at verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, For apart from the law, sin is dead. I hope you can see the point he's making. What does the law do? What does it achieve? The law, which is designed to show us the right way, 
The law actually instead fans the sin that's already there in your heart to greater heights. So we we saw this in Genesis, remember? In Genesis chapter 3, remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? And God says, you can have anything in this garden. You can eat from any tree you want. You can have any fruit. Don't worry about it. You can eat from it all except that one tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that, you'll surely die. Suddenly, that's the only fruit they want. They've got unlimited mangoes. They go, taste like dirt. Watermelon, not interested, not juicy enough. Even the fruit of the tree of life, think about this, even the fruit of the tree of life, they say, I'd rather give that up and eat from the forbidden fruit. See, the thing God's law forbids must be the sweetest, the sinful heart thinks. And so they ate the fruit, and then the law required they die. You see how it happens. Law incites sin in us. It's what it does. Paul says, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law didn't say do not covet. doesn't mean he didn't understand what coveting was. Coveting, just in case you don't understand what coveting is, coveting means wanting what's not yours. You see, that's not it. It's when the law told me I couldn't do it, suddenly I wanted to do it. And so sadly that law, look at verse 10, that law that was meant to bring life, that is the law that was designed to show me how to live the best way under God and how to experience his blessing, now that law demands my death because I'm a sinner who disobeys God's law. That is how it worked with Adam and Eve. That's how it worked with Israel. It's how it worked in the Apostle Paul's life. And it's how it works in every one of us. The forbidden fruit always seems more attractive. That locked liquor cabinet, it always seemed so exotic when I was a teenager because it was locked. There must be something good in there. That, that movie that people say should be banned because it's so explicit. You had no interest in it before. But now people say, I'd like to, I, want, I want to see that movie, even though it's rubbish. Because that's what the law does. The law fans the sin in our heart to life. So why did God give us the law in the first place? Why did he give us the Ten Commandments? Why do, why do we keep looking at it? We read it. We read the Ten Commandments tonight. Is the law evil and bad? No. Look at verse 12. He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So God doesn't give us bad things. No, it's good. But sin, our sin, use it for evil. And why did God do it? Well, look at verse 13. It says, therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. I would have sinned anyway. But he says, on the contrary, sin, in order to be recognised as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. And here's the point. That's actually the key verse in this section. Why did God give the law even though he knew we, we couldn't do it, even though he knew it would condemn us? Well, the law, by fanning our sin into life shows us just how big a problem we have. The law actually shows us the depths of our sins. It shows us that we are so sinful that even something good, we turn to evil. It shows us God's standards. It shows us how we don't meet them. It shows us how serious our sin is. And because of that, it shows us our need for forgiveness. And you see, because we see our sinfulness we see our need for help. See, it's only when you actually grasp just how sinful we are, it's only when you grasp just how far short we fall of God's holy standards 
It's only then that you can ever really grasp just how wonderful Jesus is. It's only when you grasp the depths of our sins that we grasp just how amazing his act of dying for us really is. That's what God's law does. God's law cannot make you godly. It does not give you life. It does not give you hope. It does not give you forgiveness. What it does is it shows us the depths of our sin so that we then want to turn to Jesus who can give us life and hope and forgiveness. That's why we still study the Ten Commandments. It's why we read Leviticus. It's why we read Deuteronomy. Not because we're bound by it, we're not, but because it shows us how much we need Jesus. But there's something this teaches us. It means we always need to remember that telling people God's law will never change anyone. Going out into the world and preaching the law to people will never change anyone. Going out into the world and saying, don't do this or, or do this, never produces godliness because it doesn't deal with the problem of our sinful heart. The only thing that produces true godliness is true conversion. See, the only thing that produces true godliness is people truly knowing Christ, receiving his Holy Spirit, and then as we read and hear God's word, then we'll seek to live out a godly life. And so now, you've become a Christian, praise God. You are no longer a slave to sin. You live for Jesus, praise God. So the Christian life is a walk in the park. Is that right? Come on, own it, people. Is that right? Call me a heretic. <laughs> See, now you just live a life of perfect obedience, don't you? I do, don't you? What, are you? what are you struggling with? Now you live God's way in every situation of life. Is that right? If only, if only. See, the true Christian life, no, is a continual struggle against sin. And that is what we see in this last part of chapter 7. Now, this is one of the most disputed passages in the Bible. Uh, some people don't think this can be Paul talking about his experience as a Christian. I think that's often because they just can't handle the Holy Apostle Paul talking so honestly about his struggle with his sin. Uh, I'm not going to go into the reasons why that's wrong and why this is the view of Paul as a Christian, because for the majority of Christians for the last 2,000 years, this passage has been, in fact, I think for nearly every Christian, including this Christian, this passage has been an incredible comfort because this is the place in the Bible that shows you that struggle you have in your Christian life is normal. This is so important. This, this passage shows you that even the Apostle Paul struggled with sin, like you do. So if you've switched off a bit, as I've had to get up to speed in Romans, and it's been a bit technical, so if you switched off, or if you think the person next to you has switched off, give them a nudge, give them a nudge now, because this last part, of the, some people have just taken the opportunity to give their neighbour a nudge for no good reason, but <laughs> that's because I told you, no, that worked the wrong way, I told you to do it. Anyway, don't give the person next to you a nudge, now you want to do it, no. Come back now, this last part of the chapter is so important. Look with me, I'm going to read some of it out. Look at verse 15. He says, for I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Do you know that tension as a Christian? I do. That's me every day. Look down at verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Do you know that tension? I do. As a Christian, saved by Jesus' death with the Holy Spirit in me, I am convicted of my need to live God's way. 
As I read the Word of God every day, I'm convicted of things that I need to repent of. I'm convicted of areas I need to change. I'm convicted of areas I need to grow in godliness. But as I try to do it, sometimes I succeed, praise God, but at other times I find myself failing. And at that moment, I hate what I've thought, or I hate what I've said, or or I hate what, what I've done, but I still did it. Does anyone not know this tension that he's talking about? See, even though we've died to sin, even though we have God's Holy Spirit within us, we continue to struggle with sin for our whole life. We, we hear the Word of God preached here at church and we say, Amen, I agree with that. And we sing God's praises straight afterwards and, and we want to live God's way and then we walk out and on our way home, we, we think an evil thought about someone. Or we say an unkind word, even though we've just been convicted by God's word at church that we don't want to do that and we don't want to do it and we hate the fact that we did it, but we did it. You see, when we died with Christ, the power of sin to separate us from God died and that is wonderful, praise God. The power of the law to condemn you for your sin died too and that is wonderful, praise God for it. A great spiritual change happened when you became a Christian, you became a new person, you received the Holy Spirit, but it does not immediately take away your old sinful nature. So we have this battle going on all the time between our our new spiritual selves and our old sinful nature. The Bible uses all sorts of images for it. It talks about your new self and your old self. It talks about the spirit versus the flesh. The point is we are at war within ourselves. And I want to tell you that conflict is the experience of every true and sincere Christian believer. That conflict is the experience. We we get up in the morning and we devote our day to God and we, we read his word and we pray for his help. That night we confess our sin. And we confess the words and the thoughts, the greed, the pride that have all shown themselves just in that one day. And so it'd be easy for a non-believer to look at me as a Christian and say, what a hypocrite. And sometimes they'd be right. But it's not as simple as that. See, the Apostle Paul makes a really important point here that helps us distinguish between the sin of a non-believer, the sin of a person who doesn't care because they don't know Jesus, or perhaps even worse, the real hypocrisy of someone who says they're a Christian and just keeps sinning. It helps us distinguish between that and the sin of a true believer, the sin of a Christian, a sincere Christian. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. So this verse is really important, because what he's saying is the difference is, now we know we don't want to do it. That's the difference. One, one commentator I read put it like this, and I think it's really helpful. He says, even if sinfulness is spread right throughout me, like some horrible cancer, even so, that is what it is. It's a cancer. It's not the real me anymore. It's not the person I've become in Christ. See, the fact that you struggle, The fact that you actually recognise your sin is bad and you are sorry for it, the fact that you've turned to God for forgiveness, the fact that you, you plead with him to help you in your struggle, 
the fact that you've taken a stand against your sinfulness, the fact that you hate it when you do sin, that is the proof that the real you is not your sinful nature anymore. The real you is the spirit that hates it. The picture he used here is like a war within us. Look at verse 21. So he says, so I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. That is the Christian life. We live with this tension. On the one hand, wholeheartedly committed to God's word, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly committed to God's will, but still, sin still impacts us. The Christian life is a fight. But that is so different to before we knew Jesus. Because before we knew Jesus, there was no struggle. Then we were slaves to sin. Then we didn't care. So when will this struggle end? Ask some of the older Christians who've got it all together here tonight. You won't find any. When does it say? It doesn't end in 10 years. It doesn't end in 20 years. It doesn't end in 30 years. And in fact, the more you mature as a Christian, the more aware you become of your sin. That's the reality. So what is the answer? When does it end? Look at verses 24 and 25, the high point of the chapter. What a wretched man I am. It's like the, the Amazing Grace song that saved a wretch like me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. Who's going to rescue us from these dying bodies? Who's going to rescue us from this painful struggle? Jesus will when he returns. Because then we will be transformed. It's one of the great promises of Scripture. When Christ returns, we'll be raised, we'll be given new resurrection bodies, and we'll be free from our old selves once and for all. The Bible calls it our glorification. And the Bible looks forward to that day when we are glorified more than anything else, because only then will we be freed from this battle, freed from this tension, so that we can live lives of perfect obedience to God. If you look in your outline, although the different parts will come up on the, on the screen, I've, I've put a table I put together for a doctrine course we did a few years ago. It was sometime before COVID. I don't remember when. Everything before COVID's a blur. So it was sometime before COVID we did it. So you might have seen it before. Uh, but I think this is really helpful for helping you understand the stages of the Christian life in the book of Romans. So the first is stage one. Before we became a Christian, what was our reality? We were slaves to sin. We were under the judgment of God. We were unable to obey God's law or please him. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you might say, that's not true. I can do good things. I can please God. That's true. You can do good things, but you can't please God until you recognize him for who he is. So anything that does not come from faith in God does not please him. So that's us before we became a Christian. But then stage two, which is Romans 1 to 5, basically, when we become a Christian, we're justified. We're declared right with God. We're declared innocent. We're forgiven. Our eternal life is secured we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is the great promise of the book of Romans. Never take it for granted. But then what we're talking about tonight is stage three, which is the Christian life. You see, in the Christian life, we're being sanctified. We're growing in godliness. Over time, we, we, we are able to put off sin and grow in godliness, but we'll never be perfect. It is a continual struggle between the spirit and the flesh. And then finally, stage four, what we look forward to is when Jesus returns, when we'll be glorified, when we'll be without sin, and we'll have eternal life with no struggle, and we'll have a renewed mind and spirit and body. That's what we look forward to. I hope you find that table helpful, just as a way of putting together the book of Romans, and more importantly, understanding the Christian life. But to close, where does that leave us? 
three brief final conclusions. The first is, you will live with that tension until you die or until Christ returns. That is the reality of the Christian life. The Christian life is a battle. That's reality. We are not slaves to sin any longer, but we do still sin. See, we know we're forgiven, but we keep struggling to actually do God's will. The problem is, I want to tell you, the problem is if there is no struggle within you. That's the problem. Don't be put off and wonder, am I a Christian if you're struggling with sin? Yes, hate that sin, but the fact you struggle with it is wonderful because it says you have God's Holy Spirit in you. But if you just don't care, if you just say, I'm just going to do whatever I want, I don't care, that is the worry. Because if there is no tension, if you brought the devil's lie that you're pretty good or even worse, you just don't care about the sin in your life, be very worried because that suggests you are still a slave to sin, not yet a Christian. So be aware that tension is the Christian experience. Second thing, that means we long for Jesus to return, don't we? We long for it. We don't just long for Jesus to return to put an end to war and suffering and pain. We long for Jesus to return to put an end to this tension and to make us perfect once and for all. See, sometimes I think too many of us Christians get used to the tension and we're sort of happy with it. And we're sort of happy living here on earth. And we forget that we're in a civil war. You see, we look forward to when Christ returns and there will be no more tension. See, we, live, we will live as God intended us to live with him forever. So pray for Christ's return. Pray, come Lord Jesus, every day. But then thirdly and finally, and I want to stress this, this is not defeatism. Some people will hear Romans 7 and say, oh, well, I can't help it. Get out of my way. I'll just keep sinning. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. See, he's saying, you're not a slave to sin any longer. This is not what you're meant to be. You have the Spirit of God. You have been freed from the power and penalty of sin. Yes, there's a tension. Yes, it's a battle. Yes, you'll fail at points. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are able to put off sin in our lives and put on righteousness. God has given us what we, are, what we need to win the fights, if you like. We will not reach perfection, not until Christ returns, but we do have the weapons to fight the fight. So do not hear this as defeatism. Instead, hear it as an encouragement that your struggle is legitimate. Your struggle doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but also that we look forward to that day when Christ returns and it will be dealt with once and for all. That's the reality of the Christian life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Romans and the chance to come back to it. We thank you most of all for the wonderful news of your gospel, that even though we are slaves to sin, even though we deserve your righteous wrath and judgment, you have dealt with our problem. You've sent your son to pay the price, and by trusting in him, we can know for certain that we have been declared innocent in your eyes. But Father, now we pray that you will help us as we live out the Christian life. Help us in this struggle to put off sin and put on godliness. But Father, more than anything, we long for that day when Christ returns and we'll be glorified without sin once and for all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.